Good morning. We are so glad that you are here at Central Church of the Nazarene this Sunday morning. It's great having you here. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Itty Bitty, and it's really focusing on that last bit of the, of the words, the I-T-Y suffix. Today's word is purity. Now, if you've been around church circles very much at all, you know uh, purity is a word that we preachers like to talk about. If you're in a dangerous situation, you're, you're told to, to be aware of your surroundings. Well, our world is, is impure, and it seems like getting more and more impure with each and every passing day. We used to teach kids the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down below. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, I think that's true not just for our children. That's true for big eyes as well. And maybe we should make that into some kind of contemporary song because it seems that as our world gets more and more impure, we need, we need to be reminded that our eyes need to be careful of what they see. Our hands need to be careful of where they go. Our, our feet need to be careful of what's going on around us. There, our ears need to be careful as to what we listen to and, and participate in. Now, now, I don't think that we honestly need another sermon about the increasingly impure world in which we live in. I think you know that. Our culture seems to be getting more and more impure, seems to be less concerned about purity than ever before. But the truth of the matter is God takes this stuff really serious. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality for, or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint of sexual immorality of, of, uh, of impurity, of greed, not even, not even a smidgen. Religious sociologists are trying to explain why is it that in America today, every single faith tradition is, is in decline, every one. And they've tried to come up with examples of, of why the, 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 the culture has become a post-Christian culture. What did we do wrong is really what they're asking. Why is it that that our culture is becoming less Christian and, and, and post-Christian. And I'll give you my theory. I think we have failed, as Paul has indicated here, I think we have failed to live as holy people. We failed to live and act and behave as Jesus. And our world has looked around, the culture has looked around and seen how the church behaves no different from the rest of the world. And they think, well, you're not offering any kind of alternative. You're just like me. Why would I want to join in with that? And I think that, that has, has, has this, this disparity between, between the church and culture and how we have seemingly grown together is, is seen in, in relations to sexual immorality. A study was done not all that long ago that surveyed uh, young adults, 15 to 29, who, who claimed their own self-evaluation, uh, claimed to be evangelical. So by their own uh, assessment, they were evangelical Christians. And of those surveyed, 80% said that they were having sex outside of marriage. 42% were involved in a current sexual relationship. And this, is, this isn't, you know, the world. This is, this is the church kids. And it wasn't all that much different from the non-church kids. The non-church people were 88% were, were having sex. 53% were in a current relationship. So there's not that big of a difference and if we use Paul's words here, not even a hint of sexual immorality, it seems like it's full-blown sexual immorality. 
Paul said, among you there must not even be a hint, not even a hint, not even a smidgen of sexual immorality. Well, what's, what's a hint of sexual immorality? I think it's, it, it, it's looking lustfully, you know, it's, 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 it's involved in, in that, it's, it's laughing at, at sexual jokes, that would certainly be a, a hint. It's, it's not protecting your thought life and going to, to, to different places. It's dropping sexual innuendos in, in conversation, that would be a, a hint of sexual immorality. It doesn't seem like we've a hint that it's, it's, it seems like it's more full-blown. Moreover, that same study showed that, that Christians, evangelical Christians, still believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong, still believe that pornography is wrong, still believe that abortion is wrong. So it seems to me that the problem isn't bad theology, it isn't bad morals, it's bad practice. It's doing what that theology and, and those morals dictate. See, so I don't think we need another sermon on the evils of pornography or the evils or the trouble of sexual promiscuity or the lack of purity. I think we get that. We understand that. What we need maybe is how to avoid the death trap of pornography. How do, how do we avoid the, the failing of, uh, 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 of where sexual immorality outside of marriage comes in or where do we, where do we, how do we become pure and stay pure? And if you think, well, that's not ours. That survey, that's not about our kids. No, I think it really is about our kids. I think it is about the best and the brightest falling prey to some of the cultural norms that we're facing today. And so the question is, well, how do we approach it? What do we do? I think God's word will help us with that. I think David, who we've been looking at, is going to help us with this. Remember last week, again, we, we talked about David finding his identity not what he did. It wasn't David the conqueror, David the king, David the, the, the rebuilder of, of Israel. But rather, God was saying, David, you're, I'm going to build a dynasty. It's from your line is going to come the Messiah. David was on top of the world in 2 Samuel chapter 7. On top of the world. In chapters 8 and 9 and 10, David is, is, is living into that identity and he is becoming victorious, victory after victory. In fact, 2 Samuel 8.14 says, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. You can't get any better than that. Wherever he was going, he was having victories. Every time he went out to battle, he was winning. You can't get any better. It culminates, really, at the end of chapter 10. When, it says, when the Bible reads this, the Arameans formed the battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. I think David probably had a little bit of help with that. Um, David's getting credit for all the soldiers' work. But 700 charioteers, 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings who were vassals of Hadazer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. David is on top of the world. That's what that's saying. You can't get any better. He is the victorious king. He's on top of the world. He's the best and the brightest. He's, he's a man who's found his identity in God. He's a, he's a man after God's own heart. He is on top of the world at the end of chapter 10. But then we get to chapter 11, and we discover that temptation is not uh, a stranger to any of us. This is how chapter 11 reads. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Iliam, the wife of, or the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. There you have it. David, like the 80% of young adults, David, the best and the brightest, David on top of the world, David, the man after God's own heart, David, whose identity was found in God, David turned to an impure and a morally bankrupt place, and it happened that fast. So let's talk about this. How could that happen to David? I mean, if it happened to David, on top of the world, David, man after God's own heart, David, uh, a man who had this powerful encounter with God where he discovered that it was from his line was going to come the Messiah, how could it happen to David? And if it could happen to a guy like David, for crying out loud, then it probably could happen to people like us. So let's look at David. What happened? What went wrong? He was in the wrong place. The Bible says, verse 1, in the springtime... At the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. It's hard to know his motivation for staying behind when the rest of his soldiers were out. Maybe he had other kingly duties. Maybe there was king stuff he needed to do. I don't know. But like an athlete who misses the game, like a politician who misses the campaign trail, like an actress who misses the limelight, David was missing the battlefield. He missed the rush of adrenaline. He missed the camaraderie amongst the troops. He missed making headlines. Remember, David had killed his 40,000 soldiers. And David is no longer making history. David is now history. So it's not hard to imagine that, that while he was hanging back in Jerusalem, while all of his men were out, that David may have gotten a little bored in Jerusalem. David's in the wrong place. He should have been out with his troops. He should have been out with the men. He should have been facing these battles. You've heard the, the phrase, idle hands are, are the devil's workshop. I think David was living into that. Idle eyes are also the, David, the devil's workshop. Most Bible scholars think that David was in his mid-30s, so it's not like he's too old to fight. He's not too, too aged to go out. He can do it, but he stayed behind. People fall into the trap of impurity and sin when they have nothing better to do. I think boredom is one of the main culprits And the cure for sin, I believe, is having a God-sized vision where we are consumed by this God-sized vision where we see what God could do in us and through us and we're consumed by that. See, if you're consumed by a God-sized vision, if you're consumed by who Jesus is and what Jesus can do through you, you don't always have time to fall prey to some of those sexual sins. David was literally in the wrong place. He was in Jerusalem when kings were out on the battlefield. He was in the wrong place Emotionally, he was in the wrong place. Spiritually, he was in the wrong place. Mentally, temptation has a way of finding people in the wrong place. And that's why the best defense against temptation is avoiding those tempting situations altogether. I told you before, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, and after he became a Christian, um, he refused to go into places that served alcohol. He knew that he wasn't strong enough to handle it, quite frankly. And so he, he didn't know what would happen if he went into a bar that, that when, where he saw the familiar sights and he smelled the f- familiar smells and he heard the familiar noises. He didn't know if he would be able to withstand that temptation. 
And so for years, we didn't go to any place that served alcohol. Uh, my growing up years, we never went to a restaurant that served alcohol. And it wasn't that my dad was, was uh, a fanatical about it. He wasn't trying to impose that on other people. He just knew where he came from. And he didn't know what would happen if he was in an environment where there was drinking going on. And it was too big of a risk, quite frankly. He saw how alcohol nearly destroyed his family, destroyed his marriage, how it destroyed his mom and dad's life and everyone in his family's life. He saw all of those problems. Risk wasn't worth it. So we just didn't go. We never went. I guess the point is, when you know the temptations are high, we need to avoid those places. Don't go to those places. If you know the temptation is high, then turn off the computer or turn off the TV or find other modes of of expression. David was in the wrong place. Secondly, David took a wrong look. Verse 2 says, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, it's not a sin to notice a beautiful woman or beautiful man. It becomes a sin when we notice, 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 blah, 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 boom, to keep on noticing. The Hebrew word here, the, here's your Hebrew lesson for the day. The Hebrew word for saw is, is ra, almost like the marine, hoorah. It's like that, R-A apostrophe A-H, ra. And ra means an extended gaze with enjoyment. It means lust. That's the basic word. It was wrong, it's, it's simple, it's ungodly, it's lust. It's one thing to notice an attractive person. It's another thing to keep on, keep on, keep on noticing. David took a wrong look. I've known plenty of people who have taken wrong looks. Maybe it's on the internet, maybe it's flipping through channels and they just stayed too long on a steamy section and they've taken a wrong look. Taken a wrong look at the person in the office next over or the classroom next over. Paul's words again, not even a hint. Proverbs 27, 12 says, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple see danger and keep on going. My dad saw danger in those establishments that he used to go to, and he said, I'm going to keep on going. It's not worth it. We would do well to do the same. And if you're having trouble with this, let me just simply suggest this. Just ask the Lord to help. Just simply pray, Lord, put up a roadblock. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I don't want that to define me. I don't want that to be who I am. And so so put up a roadblock. Tell me no. And that's a prayer that God will always answer. Every single time. If you ask God to help you with issues like pornography or sexual impurity, and you say, God, put up a roadblock, God will do it. But then it'll be up to you whether you're going to listen or whether you're going to just crash on through. But I will warn you this, if you pray that prayer to God and you say, put up a roadblock and God puts up a roadblock and you crash through and you crash through and you crash through and you continue to disobey what you've asked God to do, his voice will get softer and softer and quieter and quieter in your life. If you you disobey what you've clearly asked him to do, then God will keep calling, but you'll stop listening. It happens. Well, David not only took a wrong, was in the wrong place and took a wrong look, he had wrong friends. Did you see verse 3 and 4? David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Who are those messengers? Now, I know, I understand it's the king, and the king sends messengers, and you've got to do what the king says. I get that. 
king says to go, you go. I get that. I understand that. But if these guys were his friends, if these guys were truly friends, he would have said, hey, go find out about her. They would have come back and said, that's Uriah's wife. Don't go there, brother. You know that, 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 that she is off limits. If they were his friends, they would have spoke clearly to him and told him, listen, don't even, don't even think about it. See, we all need good, honest Christian friends around us in our life that can speak the truth into our life and we can bounce an idea off of them and if they are truly godly and truly a Christian friend and truly a friend, they'll say, stop it right there. You're going down a road you don't want to travel. And the fourth thing, David was was in the wrong place and took a wrong look. He had wrong friends and as we all know, David made a wrong, terribly wrong choice. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. How very, very sad. It's sad when anyone has a complete moral failure. David, a man after God's own heart. David, a guy who was getting victories wherever he went. That's what the Bible says, victories wherever he went. David, who had encountered God in this powerful way in chapter 7 that we looked at last week, and God said, it's from you is going to come the Messiah. David, who had everything going for him crashed and burned see if you think that you're exempt from temptations or exempt from falling don't think that at all here's david he had everything in the world going for him and yet he still crashed there's a parenthetical statement it's kind of crazy really i didn't read it it's still in in verse four it says this talking about bathsheba and then in parentheses, right after he says that she went and they slept together, it says, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Why is that so, so weird? It's weird because that parenthetical statement about the purifying that's mentioned, that's a law that was written in Leviticus that's required for a husband and a wife. Obviously, David is not Bathsheba's husband. She is not his wife. But they're observing the law as if they are husband and wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other places in the Bible, when it talks about a husband and wife having sex, it doesn't doesn't refer to this purification rite. You can read that all over the Old Testament. When husband and wife come together, it doesn't mention the Leviticus purification rites. It just kind of just goes on. So why does it do it here? Why mention the purification right here when it doesn't even apply to them? Do you understand my question? It would be like you seeing a thief and the thief saying, listen, I'm going to rob that bank, but I can't rob it on Sunday because that's the Sabbath day. It's like, (laughs) wait, you're a thief. You you should, you know, the rest of the law says something about banks. It's like a story that happened. Actually, the lady was from Kansas, of all places, and she was in a faith tradition that taught that divorce was wrong. She was, I mean, it was wrong, wrong, wrong. You never, ever, ever, no matter what, you don't get a divorce. It's wrong. And so she hired a hitman to kill her husband. You know, divorce is bad, but murder, well, you know, that's okay. Which makes me a little worried about Carla every now and then. It's a joke. It's a joke. I, it's, David is so twisted. He's trying to spiritualize his, his behavior and trying to turn it into something that God had set aside. Those rights were for a husband and a wife, and yet now they're twisting it to, to somehow redeem this terrible situation. 
several years ago, probably 30 years ago now, I had a friend who was having problems with his kids. Their, their, their family was totally messed up. So they wanted to meet with me and talk about their kids and how they're so messed up and what we could do about it. So we sat down and we, we met. And I didn't know much of his story. We had met. When, when we met, he had these kids. And, and so I didn't think anything about it. But he told me, he and his wife, we sat down together. And they proceeded to tell me that they had been married before. This was a blended family. And they, they had met when they were married to other spouses. And how they had an affair. And, and, and divorced their spouses and got married and brought these, the family together, made this blended family, one Brady Bunch, brought it all together. And they proceeded to tell me how God had led them to each other. And how God had, you know, how it was a, just this wonderful, beautiful thing. And I'm sure my mouth must have dropped open. And I'm, I'm more mature now, so I probably wouldn't have said it this way now. But I said, Are you kidding me? I said, are you trying to tell me that God brought you, you two were married to somebody else, but God brought you together and you had an affair and you divorced your spouses and now you, you brought the family together. Is that what you're trying to And they said, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I said, no, it's not beautiful. I said, it's awful. I said, I, said, I don't know what God you serve, but, but the God I serve, he never okays affairs. That's always bad. And so, so if, if that's what you're telling me, that God somehow ordained this or okayed this or whatever this, then, then we serve two different gods. The, the guy, I didn't tell you, he was a pastor, and he was not happy. He was mad. I don't think he's talked to me since then. But he, they were trying to do what David is. They were trying to sanctify something that was unholy and impure. It doesn't work that way. David was trying to justify his sinful behavior, keeping part of the law while destroying all of the law. It doesn't work that way. Do you remember the little poem, the children's poem that we used to teach our kids? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That's David. He's Humpty Dumpty. He's fallen, and he's broken into a million pieces. And it was that way until the prophet Nathan came to him and just kind of laid it all out. David, you're the man. You remember that story. And David was absolutely undone. He realized that his reputation was gone and his dignity was lost and he was caught and it was awful and it was scary and it was shameful and it was guilt-ridden. And you think, you think, all right, David, you're done. All that stuff about the Messiah coming through your line. All that stuff about, about blessings wherever you went. You're done. After what you did, you're done. And in the midst of that turmoil and strife, David wrote the 51st Psalm. And this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. I'd bring you a million sacrifices. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, or I'd bring it. I would have brought a million burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart to you, God. That way you will not despise. You see him? He's saying, I'm broken, but I want to sing again. I messed up literally royally, but I want to be yours again. I want to experience peace again. I want to be a man after your own heart again. And David is begging for forgiveness. This worst chapter in David's life. And he's begging God to, to somehow, some way, forgive him. You would think God would say, that's it, forget it, David, not you. Not after you've done. Not after where you've been. But God doesn't say that at all. And maybe you've been where David is. Maybe not a full-blown affair, certainly not a murderous cover-up. But maybe you haven't always lived a life pleasing to God. Maybe you've, you have uh, traveled down some, with some hint of sexual immorality. Maybe it's been more than a hint. Let me tell you, there's still hope for you. Again, we see that in David's life. In the Old Testament, kings are divided into kings who who please God and kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord and kings who did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. That's how they're always described. They did right in the eyes of the Lord. They did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And here's the crazy thing about David. When you get to the end of the story, 1 Kings chapter 15 talks about David. And this is what it says. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. But that was the exception. That wasn't the rule. That's my point. And and your sin, whatever it is, can be the exception of your character as well. If you simply confess it, if if you have a Psalm 51 experience like David did, See, David was not defined by his sin. He was counted among the kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord. And because he confessed, Psalm 51, because he confessed his role in the, in the whole mess, because he didn't make excuses or rationalizations, he confessed, your sins, your sins can be in the past. And maybe they define your past. Maybe they define who you, maybe they define who you were up until right now. But they don't have to define your present. They certainly don't have to define your future. In this day and age, when there's so many attacks against us, when we live in such an impure society, we need help. What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says, no temptation has overtaken you, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. For when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's the truth. God can release you. Jesus came to set you free. That's the good news of this passage. Jesus came to set you free. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Thank you for how you're working. Thank you that we can be victors through Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.